Coming up on this week's show, one of the 90s biggest FPS games is back. Lara Croft becomes self-aware. And we chat Cyber Dreams, Nova Logic and Neversoft with Joby Atero. And the Retro Hour podcast is brought to you every weekend with our incredible friends at Bitmap Books. Now, have you seen their latest book, The Art of the Box? Now, this is available right now for pre-order. A stunning new volume featuring 26 artist biographies and more than 350 pieces of cover art celebrating four decades of video games. You can check that out in the rest of their retro gaming collection and pre-order your copy right now at bitmapbooks.com. And with our good mates at PCBWay. Now, if you're working on a retro project over summer, you know they offer a fully featured custom PCB prototyping service, low cost, fast turnaround quality boards, and they offer services like 3D printing and injection molding. And you know that PCBWay are big supporters of the retro community. So get an instant quote right now at PCBWay.com. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 391, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And here we go again, our favourite bit of the week just before the weekend when we get to reminisce about all things retro, classic video games, old school consoles, old school tech, and of course we welcome on a veteran of the industry to share their story in the second half of the podcast. Basically, if you love old video games, old systems, and you remember this sound... And this is the podcast for you. You're getting into the obscure look- <laughs> stuff now, aren't you, Dan? <laughs> and I know you guys look forward to the uh, the sounds every week, and uh, I thought I'd pick another console startup there. Any idea on that one, Joe? Yeah. I mean, I, I joked about the Apple Pippin the other week. <laughs> you know what? I nearly used the Apple Pippin one, but literally it goes, Pippin, and that is the Apple Pippin. <laughs> well, I don't there, know so what that probably was. Oh, what was that? I don't know it. You're going to tell me it's something like really obvious now as well. It was the PlayStation 2 joke. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I know what that sounds like. But... Now, no one remembers this one. It's a Philips CDI. Oh. Uh, so there you there go. You go. Not, not a system many people have in their collection. I you know? thought it was I'm like, uh, you know, a TV show outro. You know, like... Um, like an 80s documentary. Yeah. Or like a, a children's TV, like Saturday morning cartoons at the end where it do like dick or whatever. <laughs> like, if you remember them. I thought it was that. I was like, oh. I don't know this. When I run out of the when I run out of the console startup sounds, I'll move into them for yeah, you. Yeah, do it. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, we have got an incredible show lined up for you this week as well. We're going to update you on all the big happenings in the world of retro. If we can uh, tear ourselves away from the Quake Two remaster that's just landed, we'll talk about that in just a minute. Um, somebody who. Uh, might not be playing that though, unless you've got it on a Switch, which I know you haven't got a Switch, so you won't be doing that, Ravi, because you're on a plane right now oh. when this show lands, because you're heading out to Norway for the weekend. Yeah, I'll probably be reading a book. <laughs> Pretty old school. But um, yeah, or asleep. through the power of time travel, because we're recording this early, um, I should be in Norway now, um, all things going well. Uh, yeah, on a Friday, and uh, that's the 18th of August. And then Saturday... We have the main event, which is Retro Mesa. So that's uh, uh, Sandy Ford. It's a show that we've done before. It's absolutely fantastic. Um, it's grown to huge levels. This year, I think it's going to be the biggest one that they've ever done. Uh, they've got Nobuo Yat- 
Yamatsu, I could never say the name correctly. The Final Fantasy VII Orchestra. <laughs> yes, that's... Yeah. Practice yeah. before you interview him on stage, right? And they're going to be doing a, a live show, and I'm going with Neil uh, from RMC and also This Week in Retro, and uh, mm. we're going to be hosting some wicked panels. So, uh, yeah, we've got uh, Kev Bayliss and Will Overton, and we're going to be doing uh, art in video games, and Jonathan Dunn as well. Um, from Ocean Software. So we're going to be talking about some of the legendary, you know, music that he produced on uh, games like Rambo and uh, The Simpsons. And uh, then we've also got a Banjo-Kazooie panel, which is uh, going to be Paul Makachet and uh, Grant Kirkhope as well, who's um, going to be out there. And, uh, you know, I don't think he's actually come before. And then um, we've got David Wise as well and Grant Kirkhope doing a panel. And then we've got an ultimate rare panel at the end. And I think the rare band is going to be there, um, you know, doing some wicked tunes as well. So it's going to be a very musical weekend. And uh, I've already been getting loads of messages from people saying, uh, really looking forward to seeing you. So this year, make sure Neil gets all the Jaeger bombs. And, uh... Yeah, because we, we went to this event last year, and unfortunately, I've got a family thing this weekend, so uh, it, it timed really badly, and I couldn't make it, and Joe's got to work. So uh, nice of Neil to uh, go out there with you and take a bullet, as it were, because uh, last year, I mean, the Norwegians, you know, after, a, I think you've said it before, that after a few drinks, the, the Viking in them kind of comes yeah, out. Yeah, exactly. And, so uh, I'm going to direct yeah. that onto Neil, and then yeah. hopefully <laughs> next next week, you'll be able to hear this week in retro, and you'll get a very croaky Neil. <laughs> so if you are out there this weekend, I'm gutted I can't make it, though, because it's such a good event, you know, the, the last few years that we been out. Um, so Retro Mesa on Incendiefield in Norway this weekend if you want to go say hi to Ravi and Neil. If you can't make it out there though, fear not because uh, we are going to be recording some of the panels that they do out there and they're playing them out on the podcast over the next coming weeks. So uh, have an incredible time if you're heading along. Now, on the podcast this week, of course, keeping up our tradition of bringing you wonderful guests on the show, and uh, this week, uh, a really interesting interview, talking about all kinds of things in here, including um, a game that I know you were a big fan of back in the day, Darkseed. Oh, God, that, that game, I still have nightmares about it. Like, it really scared me when I was a kid. Uh, have you played it, Joe, Darkseed? No, I've n- I know what it is, but I've never played Darkseed, but it, it yeah, it's a, it's a creepy one, isn't it? Yeah, so uh, this week's guest, we have uh, Joby Otero, and he worked for Cyber Dreams. And, um, you know, Cyber Dreams produced Darkseed, but they also did like Cyber Racer. And it was very interesting because it was uh, HR Giger, and, um, you know, it's inspired by his art. He also worked alongside them, you know, uh, choosing the art. And we hear about that whole process of how that happened. Um, it's very interesting. It's a real time um, kind of point and click game and uh, had an interesting horror film and these kind of light and dark worlds. Um, I really enjoyed that title. And then later... And, and, and very ahead of its time as well, because it had like digitised graphics and stuff in there as well. The yeah, voice acting as well. as well. Yeah, you know, very ahead of its time. Yeah, and it, and it kind of went onto multiple systems. I remember the CD versions of it and stuff. Um, but, you know, kind of getting that done early on and getting the art behind there, it was, it was really dark and Joby was massively involved in the art. And then... Later on, he went on to uh, Nova Logic as well and Neversoft, but um, also worked on MDK, which is another another really dark themed kind of title, and also Sacrifice. And then, you know, we talk about that kind of transition from two D to three D and how that happened in the art world. And then later on, he went on to a series that I still love today that I think is pretty amazingly impressive, which was a true crime series where. Uh, the map was actually, you know, bigger than San Andreas and uh, it was absolutely giant and it was all 
built using like GPS and uh, uh, map data, a very accurate uh, version of San Francisco. So um, yeah, oh, LA actually. Um, but yeah, it's it's a really interesting interview. This is we go for a huge time period, and uh, I'm so happy to get Joby on. Yeah, I mean, really, we, we kind of cover from the uh, the TI ninety nine and the Atari four hundred, right through the, uh, the the early kind of two D into three D and voxel graphics and FMV, and we even talk about the um, the work that he did on Sega's unreleased VR headset. Don't ah, we? yes, Which yeah, is interesting. I even forgot that. about that. Yeah. You probably, I think we've talked about them on the podcast before, Joe. I imagine whatever you see. I know you've got a nice Mega Drive collection. Do you wish that you had Sega VR goggles in your collection, though? I do. Not to play or anything, just to rub it in my friend Jason's face because he's going <laughs> for like the full Mega Drive collection. So it'd be great if I had them and he didn't. But yeah, no, I'm all, I'm all about the uh, the games. <laughs> well, if you want to hear what the experience was like, um, we actually get a bit of an insight into kind of how well they worked or maybe not as the case may be <laughs> with uh, Jovi. He's our special guest this week and he'll be on the show in around half an hour from now. But before then, lots of new stories to bring you up to speed on. So let's plough through them this week, of course, starting with the big one. That I'm sure is a game that everyone's going to be playing this weekend. And uh, I'm hoping my Wi-Fi connection is holding up because, uh, stupidly, before we started recording, I set my Xbox to uh, download Quake 2 that has just landed on Xbox Game Pass. And this is following on from the remaster that we got back in, was it like 2020, 2021? Yeah. When the first Quake got remastered. The second game has finally had the full HD rework treatment. Yeah, man. I mean, this has been rumoured for months now. Um, I think it's like one of those worst, best kept secrets kind of thing. Quake. Yeah, we all knew, we it, all was knew coming, it was coming. Uh, Quake 2 remaster. What I don't know if it was QuakeCon, because it was meant to be QuakeCon. Uh, like the 25-year anniversary of Quake 2 this year. And the, the rumour was it was going to get unveiled then. And I literally sat down to play my Xbox a couple of days ago now because it came out on the 11th. And it was just there, like, the, the you know, on the home screen, like, play Quake 2 now on Game Pass. Yeah. Um, so it was one of them, I think, where it was kind of like the curtain dropped and it's like, here's the trailer for Quake 2 and it's available now kind of thing, which was really cool. But what I really love about this, um, I've got loads of information about it here, but... It isn't just on digital. Um, obviously, it's on on Game Pass, which is fantastic for Xbox. But it is going to be coming out physically through limited run games as well, which is awesome. And it is on every modern console: PlayStation, Xbox, and Switch, uh, which is really cool. But yeah, it is a complete kind of like HD remake or overhaul, isn't it? So it's been remastered by Night Dive and uh, ID Software. Um, mm. Huge visual overhaul, like the first one had um, performance upgrades you know, including the models, textures, animations, and the AI have all been massively improved. It's more kind of impacting for me, this. Um, So the first Quake, when when I play it, you know, I'd be able to run it at a decent rate Mm. um, back in the days, and I'd also be able to have it in a a decent resolution. I've never seen Quake 2 in a decent resolution or at a decent speed because it always, you know, it had an extra uh, load of grunt that was needed. Yeah, um, and Quake Three, you very much play it like that. But for me, Quake Two was always laggy. Um, the textures were never this detailed, so it seems like a totally different game to me. And it seems like, you know, obviously it's it's a way that I could explore it and enjoy it more. Yeah, um, than I did back then. Yeah. Then it, it seemed like more of a technical achievement to me when it came out. You know, that the fact that I could just run it. Yeah, I, th- I agree with you there. I was never massive on Quake. My cousin had the Quake games and he'd be like, play Quake, come and play Quake. 
you think PlayStation's good? Look at this on PC. And I was just like, yeah, that it looks nice, but you, it, it never really grasped me. Whereas when the Quake 1, you know, uh, remaster came out, me and my wife played through the entire thing on co-op. You know, it's a great couch co-op game on the campaign. Um, and we really, really enjoyed it. I, I really had fun playing it. Like I said, yeah, it, it, it now, really, so. it really appeals to me playing like mm. free on like yeah. cross cross play on multiplayer and in 4k. Yeah. It's like, wow, that's a, yeah. it's like a brand new title for me. Yeah. Now. Yeah. 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 Like you say, one of the big selling points is it has got the online multiplayer on there still and they've added dynamic lighting. So, you know, they've, they've really kind of like gone for it to make it look like as a modern game as much as possible. Yeah. The lighting looks incredible. Yeah. Um, and then it comes with all the previous DLCs. Well, it comes with, I say all the DLCs, it comes with Ground Zero and Reckoning, and it's coming with a brand Big new ones. DLC called uh, Call of the Machine. Um, so there's new content in there as well as just, you know, as well as the graphical overhaul. So all around just looks absolutely fantastic. So I'm sure I'll be playing it tonight as well, Dan. I love the fact they've got the the cross-play between different consoles on yeah. there as well, which is, it's a trend that seems to be increasing now. You know, mm. more and more games are doing this, which um, I think is awesome because, uh, you know, it, there was a time, so I've got mates who have Playstations, I've got friends who've got Xboxes, and, you know, there was a time when if I wanted to play a game with certain friends, they'd have to buy, like, two copies of games. Well, you, yeah. get, you get a which friend who's like, I've bought a Playstation just because all my mates have got it. I really want an Xbox. Or, you know, there'd be that, that yeah. kind of uh, reason to do it. But now you're breaking free of that... Um, can imagine i always find when you have pc players um sometimes there's an advantage with uh keyboard and mouse um yeah. so I've, I've seen in some of them they put a handicap in there just for the pc users as well uh when they're doing crossplay to get that kind of balance yeah and i think you know again just uh a game that really warrants this treatment as well um particularly i mean i think did you ever play it on consoles back in the day jokes i know it was quite a big hit on the n64 no i haven't and uh, it's funny because the retro dodo article i was reading earlier on about it says put your n64s away you know and crank never. Out, crank out the playstation 5 for this no i never i never did play it uh, and i know it was big on mm. uh, N64 and Dreamcast or was that Quake 3? Yeah, well, well, Dreamcast had Arena, it, but it, yeah. Quake 3 was more yeah. popular, I think, yeah. because it was like, wow, look, I can run this, you know. That's what I found with Quake. I found, you know, when Quake 3 came out, it just... Just took over. It, it came yeah. on everything, you know. And yeah, Quake yeah. 2 kind of got a bit forgotten. And of course, Quake had that huge impact of coming after Doom. So, you know, that was the the new one that everybody went for. And I think, yeah, Quake 2's probably been, like, ignored a bit, you know. I did try and play Quake 3 Arena on the Dreamcast and, uh, you know, just using that single analogue stick. Oh, yeah. It's not an experience that's aged very well. Yeah, you <laughs> need your Dreamcast me, keyboard but... for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, yeah. I'm not sure whether that's an interesting experiment, whether it works with that. Uh, but obviously this is kind of the definitive way to play uh, Quake 2. And if you have got um, Xbox uh, game pass it is uh, on there this weekend so uh and available uh, on all the other systems too and that uh, obviously limited runner doing the uh the physical releases too pre-orders for that are available now so uh nice to see quake 2 getting that remaster treatment and some love now these are really interesting you know i talked about the uh limitations sometimes of old controllers there because it just kind of feel these days that you know game controllers they've kind of got it down now haven't they it's kind of every new system just has a slight iteration basically a control scheme that we've had for probably about 20 years now, really. So if you're a bit more accustomed to modern controllers, then what about using your PlayStation 5 controller or your Xbox controller on your PS1? Well, thanks to our friends at 8BitDo, this is now possible. 
Yeah, these look really interesting. You could go back and play Quake too. <laughs> yeah, <they're great. laughs> with your, your DualSense. <laughs> you um, but yeah, no, these are really cool. Um, so they've revealed the PS1 and PS2 retro receivers for modern controllers. So they are little dongles that just plug into your PS1 and PS2. Um, and they are, I, I love the look of these because they suit the the aesthetic of the PS1 and PS2. They've made them... Look like memory cards. Yeah, they look like memory cards, but obviously they plug into the controller ports and they've got a little Bluetooth receiver on there with a button and they will connect to your modern controllers. And they're pretty diverse. They will work with your Xbox One, Xbox Series S and X controller, the Elite controller, the DualShock 4, the DualSense controller, um, the Switch Pro, but then, interestingly, they will work with the Wii U Pro controller as Ooh. well. Ooh, there you uh, go. Now Ravi's interested. Yeah, which yeah. It's pretty cool. I think this it's is, a nice controller, actually, that. Yeah, this is this is great because, uh, like, I use the Wii U and I've also got Xbox One controllers that yeah. I use on, like, Steam Link yeah. and other stuff and, and, and link it up that way. And it tends to work with these Bluetooth controllers. You just, you know, use them for multiple things. Yeah. Um, and... The idea of being able to use it on a PlayStation is great because at the moment I've still got my wired controller and I'm always at that kind of idea that it's fully stretched underneath the television and I'm just going to yank it and pull the whole yeah, thing. Yeah, you know, we, we don't sit cross-legged on the floor playing our PS1s anymore. You know, we're on our big screens, yeah. <laughs> you know, sat like five, six, seven, even 10 feet away from them. Um, but yeah, no, a real. This, these are really cool, but uh, they are sold out already. They yeah. went on sale this week and they're already sold out on Amazon, on their own website. They're $25. That's um, a great, great price point, that is. Yeah, as well. I'm sure they will release more of them. Um, but obviously really popular already. But, I, you know, the PS1 one, the little grey aesthetic of it, I think that looks wicked. Uh, and, you know, I think these these are probably going to be a lot more reliable than some of the older infrared ones. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, you know, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, they're saying it's lag-free, you know, I, is it going to be 100% lag-free? Is there going to be no latency? Who I don't know yet. We've not seen the reviews, but they are boasting that they're going to be lag-free and they are going to be plug-and-play. They are just plug-in, press the button, and it will connect. For, for me, this is a money-saver. It's not for the like hardcore gamer who wants to have the original controllers. Like A lot of appeal yeah. for me is picking up the old system and picking up the old PlayStation pad and kind of going mm. on that. But also, I, I want to kind of sit back at some points and uh, use a more comfortable one if I really want to get into a game. So, yeah, it's, it's got dual uses, but at that price, you don't really think about it, do you? It's uh, yeah, it's, exactly. it's great straight away. It's cool that you can use all the, the different controllers on it as well, because, I mean, I was kind of thinking then, like, uh, how would that work, you know, if you need a certain button? But I imagine all those controllers they list there, they've all got enough buttons to work on a, a PlayStation 1 or a PlayStation 2. Yeah, I guess it might have a mapping function as well. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah, th- yeah, that makes press sense. Press start I mean, and it, select or something, you know. Even then, I mean, realistically, there's no reason that you you couldn't use a, a PlayStation 5 controller on an Xbox Series X, just that they kind of lock it, don't they, too? Is that they're very similar these days, aren't they? No one really uses that, that, that kind of touchpad thing on a PlayStation. It's interesting anyway, as well. So. It says that you can use a USB-C uh, uh, for wired connections. So right. you could even do a, a wired USB-C one when you run out of batteries. Yeah, well, it's very handy to have the option, I think. Just just the fact that it brings Wi-Fi, you know, wireless controllers to um, the classic systems without having to, you know, rely on the the old third-party solutions. That, you know, obviously, a yeah, bid there where we, we all know them for doing quality products. So I think... Um, and very affordable as well. So very nice solution if you've uh, maybe got a, an original 
PlayStation or PlayStation 2 in your media centre and you want to sit on your couch, you know, at a, at a reasonable distance for our ageing eyes. Uh, so, uh, like Joe said, they're sold out now, but I'm sure with this demand, though, it won't be long until they do another run of these. Now, one of the most interesting things that I've seen over the last couple of weeks, and uh, I'm going to rely on Ravi to kind of explain a bit more about how this works, because uh, it is rather complicated. Um, but I did see a couple of people share this in our Discord. And just a reminder that we do have a Discord server that you can join through our website, theretrohour.com. We're chatting away there, in there all week. There's even a section in there where you can submit news stories. So if you see something during the week and you think, oh, you know, the guys might want to chat about that in the podcast next week, please do drop us a little link in there. Now, this is an artificial intelligence, Lara Croft. So basically, someone's made Lara self-aware in <laughs> quotes. Yeah. So you, so basically, she can play Tomb Raider herself. You, you li- well, you leave... Um you leave kind of me to do this. <laughs> it's massively complex, but um, it you're kind of right. We'll leave yeah. it to the brainy one. It's, it's, it's really interesting. So um, it's I watched the video, the full video of this, and uh, to me it's a whole new aspect of playing games because it's one of the most entertaining videos I've seen on a, on a video game in a long time. So what they've actually done is um, they've basically – used a combination of technologies. So they've got chat GPT in there, of course, and um, they're using that with object recognition as well. And um, they're using that to kind of cre- create this personality, um, have filters in there, but allow Lara to then talk through it. You know, they've, they've got it in a voice as well, uh, you know, a female, female Lara-style British voice. I'm not sure if they recorded that separately or they or they kind of got it from the original Tomb Raider, but it really fits in there as well. Um, now, the AI, I'm not quite sure I understand how they're doing it. I think maybe it's not live. I think maybe they're going to it and then kind of getting a script and then putting it in afterwards. But it's she is self-aware in a sense, and it's very funny because... Um, it's kind of broken. So like it's imagine if you'd got Lara and you just like chucked her in the middle of Tomb Raider in, in one of the levels, she's going around trying to work out, you know, with this object recognition and chat GPT, she's trying to work out what's going on. She's saying, how can I get out of this room and stuff? But then when there's stuff like incidental music that comes in the game, obviously she also picks up on that. So it's, you want to hear a bit of it? So this is the um, from the video. So basically, Lara is off to a commentating start. what My happens. My guy just got killed by wolves, and I find myself trapped behind this door. To make matters worse, I left my jacket and grappling hook outside. Fortunately, I still have my pistols and backpack, but it only contains a compass. Yeah, and, and, and that's kind I of it. should move quickly if I don't want to freeze in place. So she basically talks through what she's doing on you know, that first bit of Tomb Raider. And I think that the voice there, it is Shelley Blonde. They've basically used one of those um, AI, you know, voice cloners. It's a, yeah, it's all AI in this. Um, yeah. And it's like the funniest bit that, you know, when the incidental music comes in, she starts going, da-dum, da-dum, like that. And she starts <laughs> to recognise that the incidental music thinks that something's, you know, uh, suggests that something's going to happen at the time. And then there's another bit where she kills the wolf. Um, 
And then she walks inside the wolf and she's like, what's going on? I shouldn't be able to do this. I'm breaking all the rules of science. And, you know, so the broken stuff and the glitches uh, are actually picked up with her and she breaks the fourth wall as well, which is the funniest part of it. And I'd love to see this like, I'd love to see, you know, Homer inside the hit and run world and see what, <laughs> what goes on in yeah, Homer's yeah, head. Yeah. What he says, but also with Homer's personality and uh, kind of jokes in there. I think this is a, a real funny thing. It, you just need to watch it because it's so unbelievably entertaining. You will get drawn in. And obviously it's just a, a set of responses and stuff. But us being humans, you know, we always try and add a personality into stuff. And, mm. um, you know, this this feels like it's 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 real in a sense. It's a, a pretty amazing achievement, to be honest. I mean, it doesn't feel that long ago that we were impressed that, you know, Google were basically getting their, their AI to place like Space Invaders or Pong. That only seems like a couple of years ago we were talking about that news story and now suddenly Tomb Raider's playing itself. Yeah, and this is all publicly available stuff that someone's just put together. You know, I can't imagine what's going on with, you know, Google DeepMind and all of these uh, future AI things as well. Uh, yeah, this has just got time to improve. But I think it's another thing where... AI is having fun with uh, classic games. Like, you know, AI was a learning tool. Uh, it used mm. classic games as a learning tool. And now, you know, it's kind of adding a different element of gameplay in there uh, and a bit of entertainment. I think I think all our listeners should watch this. You'd love it. Yeah. And I think, to be fair, plays Tomb Raider probably better than I do these days. So, uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> That's not Faster with the uh, <laughs> yeah, drawing of the guns, definitely. So, yeah. Really interesting. It's by a Foxmaster, who's the person that's uploaded this to uh, to YouTube. It's a 42-minute video, creating a self-aware Lara Croft that plays Tomb Raider. So, uh, definitely worth a watch this weekend. I will link that up and the rest of the stories in our show notes and on your podcast app or head to theretrohour.com. That's one more story to quickly talk about. Um, another PS1 style fan game and uh, this one is quite interesting. This is a uh, a game based on Twin Peaks. So I'm going to admit here I've never seen Twin Peaks. Like I know I really really need to watch it and now I need to You know what Joe? Joe, I've never watched it either. Oh okay, good. All right. I'm a stoner of course I've watched Twin Peaks. <laughs> <laughs> I know what it is. Um and 90s American drama series. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, with you know kind of like supernatural kind of thriller mystery. Yeah, also yeah. presented in that kind of American 90s bland yeah. TV yeah, uh, yeah. style which is just it fits so well to Twin Peaks yeah. cuz it Twin Peaks seems so normal. Yeah. Like, you, you know, a normal town and everything and then as the series goes on, you're like, this is whappy. And then yeah. like, by the end of it, it's it's totally not normal at all. But that that initial kind of start of it, it, it seemed very just like this is another American, you know, romance uh, kind of sitcom or something. You know? Yeah, yeah. Well, they have a, I say they, so a, an independent team uh, who are called the Blue Rose team have made a demo, a demo which actually came out today at the point of recording, so the 15th of August, for a PS1 style, so kind of like inspired by PS1, a fan game of Twin Peaks. And it is just a demo at the moment, um, so hopefully it will, I say get funding, it says it's going to be a non-profit game, so we'll see where it kind of goes. But yeah, it's it's very survival horror, Resident Evil-esque, fixed camera PS1 graphics, exploring the world of Twin Peaks. 
<laughs> and interestingly, we were talking about Tomb Raider just then. It's very Tomb Raider-esque as well, how you kind of go through your kind of like your item wheel and stuff like that and how you kind of explore the world. But this looks really interesting. I really want to get my hands on this, but I just feel like it'd be a bit wasted on me because I've not seen Twin Peaks. Yeah, um, yeah. You, you need to watch it. And, uh, you know, it's it's such a classic that it's 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 gone on to the kind of modern age. But um, yeah. this demo... It's got the music in there, and the music was a huge part of it as well. Yeah. And just watching this, it kind of like, oh, chills. Does, does it capture the atmosphere of it? Uh, yeah, but in a kind of Resident Evil. Um, <laughs> Fair enough. Metal Gear Solid way, you know. Uh, yeah. T- Twin Peaks was very NTSC uh, American kind of drama yeah. and uh, uh, filmed in a certain way. And it, it's definitely got that, but it's got the you know, the PlayStation edge, but it's got, it's got like the, the David Lynch kind of colors in it as well. So it's a nice mix, but yeah, uh, yeah it's, it's very virtual fighter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Resident Evil style as well. It turns out as well. I mean, I'm looking on um, itch.io. Yeah. They've, they've got like a few Twin Peaks things on here as well. There's kind of a Wolfenstein 3D Twin Peaks level. There's a Game Boy music pack. Oh, wow. Of Twin Peaks as well that you can, if you want to listen to the the theme tune on your Game Boy Revy, you can do that. Um, but yeah, that this demo is available now. I mean, it plays on modern PCs, so it's nothing you're going to play on your uh, original mm. PlayStation One. But graphically, I mean, yeah, it's definitely got that style, hasn't it? That kind of low polygon, early 3D, which I think we've, we've mentioned it before for horror games. It works really well. Of course, it kind of adds to that creepy aesthetic. I think, yeah, isn't it? yeah, absolutely. When we see like remakes of like Bloodborne and dead space mm. and stuff over the years the ps1 style and aesthetic of it really really does suit them and make them <laughs> and make them creepy which i love well yeah, um so uh i'm just reading that uh, twin peaks served as inspiration for zelda Link's awakening um, oh wow <laughs> apparently okay. with okay. uh the the suspicious characters that uh populated the, the game and, stuff, and, the, yeah. and the mysterious elements yeah so uh it's also um kind of Influence stuff like uh, Alan Wake and Silent Hill mm. and uh, Max Payne as well. So it does fit well into the video games world. Yeah, I'm looking on their website now. The mention, obviously, you know, it's uh, it's based on the intellectual property of Twin Peaks. It's not going to be for sale. So you mentioned about funding. I don't think they're going for any money, Joe. You know, so get that out there. Yeah. Um, there's no affiliation with the original people. And they say, marketing of this software is strictly prohibited. So I'm hoping we're not going to get into trouble from the... The Twin Peaks people are <laughs> talking about it. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it looks very cool. Though, and, uh, quite a quirky little project. So if you want to check that out, I'll put that. And the rest of the stories we talk about, you find them all in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, we're going to be talking to this week's special guest, Joby Atiro, coming up in just a minute. Uh, talking about all kinds of things, of course. Uh, his time at Cyber Dreams, Nova Logic, Neversoft, and lots more as well. He'll be coming up in just a minute. Before we do that... Let's take a moment to give a thank you to this week's sponsor, and that is our wonderful friends at Shopify. And if you use Shopify or you're about to, then this sound will be music to your ears. That is another sale on Shopify. Oh, I love Shopify. You know, uh, I used to do web development and it's an absolute nightmare doing all this e-commerce and updating it and, uh, you know, kind of doing social media marketing and all of that. I'm, I'm absolutely rubbish at it, but Shopify was fantastic because it's a all-in-one solution. You can just put it out there. It does everything for you and uh, enables you to sell on places like Facebook, Instagram, and uh, one that I don't understand, TikTok. So uh, it's really <laughs> useful. 
Yeah, that's the thing about Shopify. If you're selling anything online or in the real world as well, I mean, they basically cover all of your sales channels. It is a complete shop-ready point-of-sale system to cover all-in-one e-commerce. Everything's taken care of as well, including industry-leading tools ready to ignite your growth. Shopify will give you complete control over your business and your brand. And the good thing is, I mean, you mentioned there, Ravi, what a headache it is trying to mess around with WordPress plugins and getting them all working and everything. You don't have to learn design. You don't have to learn coding, nothing like that. Let Shopify take care of it for you. And one thing I imagine you would have appreciated when you were setting up these websites is they're 24-7 help. Oh yeah, sure. You're not receiving a call at 3am in the morning saying my shop's not working. Yeah. Uh, Let Shopify do that for you instead. They'll take care of it. So they're ready to support you every step of the way, whether you're a big company, whether you're just starting out. And the good thing is, I mean, I've got a friend who I think I mentioned it before, you know, he's writing some books and he was trying to do it himself on his website. We put Shopify on there, again, took care of it all for him. And the great thing about it is it actually helps you with specific milestones as well. So basically he could focus on what he wanted to do, which is writing books, not having to have the headache and hassle of managing his store himself. So it is time to get serious about selling and Shopify is here to take control and take your business to the next level and give you the confidence that you need. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify will be there to empower you. And of course, the thing about our podcast is, you know, we always get you incredible offers and, you know, we, we, we'd love you to take advantage of them as well. It really helps the podcast out as well. So why don't you sign up for a one pound a month trial period by using our exclusive link? Use this link so Shopify know that we've sent you shopify.co.uk slash retro hour. That's all lowercase. Open a new tab right now. Type that in shopify.co.uk slash retro hour to take your business to the next level today. And a massive thank you to our friends at Shopify for their support of our show. Now, this month is speeding by, and uh, I can't believe that next weekend it is going to be the best Sunday of the month. Patience Hangout Weekend is almost here again. <laughs> oh, how much do we love Patrons Hangout Weekend? It is. It's when we all get together. You know, all our patrons are welcome, and uh, you know, I think we've got around two hundred and seventy patrons at the moment. So, uh, you know, potentially a big audience. There. We normally get about forty or fifty people on, but basically, everyone's welcome. This is where you can come on. You can nerd out about all things retro, and uh, I mean, the conversation obviously it focuses a lot around retro gaming and technology. But we do veer off into uh, some. Uh, different topics, and sometimes some, some quite surreal topics as well on the Hangouts, but it's always a giggle, isn't it? It's it's always a giggle, and uh, yeah, we, we usually start pretty retro, kind of like anybody who's new, if they want to kind of talk through their setup and their systems, and, and sometimes we get people asking questions, can anybody identify this motherboard I've randomly got in, yeah. in my cupboard and stuff like that, that's always fun, but yeah, we do often go off on a tangent. Sometimes it can be pretty relevant, talking about films and, you know, 80s pop culture and 90s pop culture. Sometimes we've spoke about the difference between an ostrich and an emu, uh, yeah, which, which is, is interesting. Which is quite often what happens in the pub, because, uh, you know, we sometimes have a drink and have a snack and stuff while we're doing it. But yeah, the community we've built with the Hangout is absolutely fantastic. I think we were talking about karaoke machines last time and yeah. like how popular karaoke was and that you could run it on like the Sega Saturn and stuff. <laughs> really interesting. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's great for getting advice as well. I mean, the amount of things, you know, where if I, if I have a problem with one of my systems, the amount of advice I've got off that, you know, really, really clued up community that we have around this podcast is just incredible. So uh, if you join our Patreon, you'll get invited to the Hangout next weekend. And also you get the normal episode ad-free every week. We also give you an extra 10, 15 minutes of news stories. We're going to be doing for our patrons in just a moment. And uh, sometimes you get the show early if I can get it edited in time. And uh, if you join us as a gold member or above, you get access to our bonus podcast, of which there are now 30. 36 episodes and that is the retro hour after hours so a very good time to join our patrons community and of course that means you're helping out the podcast and make sure that we can continue bringing this podcast out to you every single friday as it you know not not far off our 400th episode now so it'll enable us to keep going into the 400s so if you'd like to join us on patreon all the details are on our website at theretrohour.com and of course we induct new members into the most prestigious high score table in the world of retro gaming and i'll let you guys induct our latest members into to the Hall of Fame. Hall of Fame. <laughs> Who we got, Ravi? Glenn Milford and Dustin Matson. You both joined us on Patreon over the last week. Thank you so much for your support, guys. And again, if you'd like to join the Patrons community, hopefully we'll see you on the Hangout next weekend. Head to our website at theretrohour.com. Okay, then next, you're going to get some incredible stories uh, covering such a massive period from, you know, the TR99, the Atari 400, C64, through companies like CyberDreams, Nova, Logic, Neversoft, lots more as well, with this week's special guest, Joby Atiro, is coming up next on the Retro Hour podcast. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it is time to welcome on this week's very special guest. Now, today we're joined by Joby Atiro, talking about classics like uh, Dark Seed, MDK, Sacrifice, True Crime series as well. He's worked for companies like Cyber Dreams, Nova Logic, Neversoft, Activision, and lots more as well. So we can't wait to hear some of his memories. Let's welcome him on. Welcome to the show, Joby. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate you taking the time to uh, do some reminiscing with us this week. So um, I think, you know, the beginning would be a very good point to start with. So, I mean, kind of going all the way back to day one, do you kind of remember what originally got you into video games in the first place, kind of where your first experience happened? That would be going way, way back. Uh, So I was born in 1970, right? So I grew up in the era of Pong, right? And Mm. I'm pretty sure that was my first video game experience was seeing Pong in the arcades, which would have been probably 75 or so. And then it wasn't that long after they launched those home versions that you could plug into the TV. Well, plug is even the right word. It was like those U-shaped cables. I think they were like the 75 ohm ones that you attach to the back of your black and white TV and have a Pong experience at home. But uh, the, the first experiences where I really got hands-on and started creating, I got my first computer in 79 or 80, an Atari 400, but I really started programming on a TI-99. Uh, and so that, that was my first experience, trying to like mimic the early games I was playing, things like Karate Champ and whatnot. Well, um, what was the kind of like process of creating art like on the uh, ti-99 and the older atari 400 as well yeah super fun i remember the ti-99 better because i had the the atari 400 had that uh like membrane keyboard which was just a nightmare uh to do anything on so i took that back and 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 wasn't until i got the ti-99 that had like a decent keyboard and the programming experience on that was pretty basic because literally that was my first coding language was basic and it was pretty much like taking pieces of grass paper 
and drawing out vaguely what she wanted and then plugging the pixels of that in line by line. I think the TI-99 had these, what they call HCHAR and VCHAR statements, where for each one you would give it uh, the eight pixels of a line uh, and then you'd do eight of those to get a full eight by eight area of graphics. That's kind of how you plugged in a sprite. But you usually would, you know, either type some typing in notes to yourself or take a piece of graph paper and kind of graph it out. And then, you know, you'd build your graphics sprite at a time that way and then a level at a time by taking data statements that would store those eight by eight character things into an array that you'd slowly build your little levels at those little block graphics. It must have uh, kind of been a dream when the C64 came out. And uh... Oh my God, yes. What a leap on, on a number of levels. Because for me personally, I mean, I grew up very poor. Like my family, we, we had very little. And so uh, to get my first computer, I would trade Lego blocks and take whatever money I would earned from a paper route that we had. So when I got my first couple of computers, I couldn't afford storage. When you ask what was it like programming those early games, the biggest thing was getting up every day and remembering what I had coded the night before and typing it in from scratch so that I could pick up where I left off. <laughs> so it wasn't until I got a Commodore 64 that I had scrapped together enough money to buy my first storage device, which was just one of those cheesy tape drives. I forget what number they gave that. Oh, the data um, set, yeah, I remember Yeah, that. yeah. yeah. So that I could finally actually like record what I had done the day before so I didn't have to like type it all in again the next day. <laughs> and then when I got my first floppy drive, which I think it was the 1541 on the Commodore 64, yeah. whatever that was, that was, oh my God, what a revelation. I was wondering yeah. if you ever got the uh, Koala pad at all. I did. On. Oh, yes. Many hours with the Koala Paint app. Um, and that was just such a huge, huge leap from what I could do manually, like typing in. Uh, pixel statements, basically. Um, yeah, the koala pad and the color cycling thing, that was a big deal. Well, when you're using those machines, like the Commodore 64, and you know, before the Atari and the, the TI-99-4A, I mean, what was there any games, artwork that really inspired you? Any kind of visuals on those systems that you're, you're inspired by? Uh, there were a couple, but the thing with the TI-99 is that either they didn't have or I don't remember or couldn't afford like the name brand games. So they would have like somebody would do a version of the game like Pac-Man, but it wasn't called Pac-Man. It was called Puck-Man or something like that, you know, or Tax-Man or something like that, you know. Yeah. Um, and I just remember being super impressed how much they got on screen at once. There wasn't a lot of games that had interesting parallaxing or anything like that, but compared to what I could do, in basic on the same machine, you know, they obviously were doing much more advanced stuff. But it wasn't really until the Commodore 64 that I had my mind blown by some of the tricks that uh, people were doing. I think uh, like Sid Mead was already a big deal. No, sorry, Sid Meier, the guy who later went on to make Civilization. I think some of his earlier games were like F-14 Strike Eagle or SF-15 Strike Eagle. That was a phenomenon back then for me because... He had the the top half of the screen, if I recall, was running in the the mode that was half resolution, but you could use more colors. And then the bottom where you had like the instrument panel, I'm probably getting this backwards, but I think he was using some assembly language to do a scan line interrupt so that the two halves of the screen vertically 
could be in different resolutions so that one could be like the 3D scenery, you know, pseudo 3D scenery, and then the other could have the more detail that you would need. I was wondering as well, outside of the computer world, did you have like much influence from, uh, you know, visual art, uh, visual influencers like, uh, you know, Dali and uh, Da Vinci and stuff like that? Oh, yeah. I mean, Da Vinci's been my number one forever, not just visually, just because he always resonated with me as somebody who is curious about everything. And I've always been that way. Uh, There's just no area of human knowledge that doesn't influence me in one way or another. Uh, So a lot lot of my artistic influence actually comes from science, not in a direct way, but just because reading about physics from a very young age, I realized just how much further experience could go than what we normally see. And Da Vinci, for his day, I mean, obviously, scientific knowledge was very primitive compared to what we know today. But he brought it all together, you know, all everything that he had access to, all the latest findings, he was curious about it and brought it into his artwork in different ways. So that's that's number one. But then in terms of like more contemporary or more recent artists, yeah, you mentioned one, Salvador Dali, was a huge, huge influence. H.R. Giger, who I got to work with his artwork later on in games like Darkseed, um, mm. and Sid Mead. It was another guy whose artwork I got to uh, work with, and I got to meet him personally, um, and he gave me some input on my artwork, which was really interesting. Well, you mentioned about, you know, kind of recreating games like, you know, Karate Champ at home, and I know Miss Command also was one of your early days. Yeah. But how did that kind of transition into working in the industry then? What were kind of your first steps professionally? First step was uh, having a friend when I was uh, 19, I guess, or 20, and she uh, asked, well, what are you going to do for a living? And I had been making games just sort of in my bedroom for a decade. And so then in 1990, when I was 20 years old, I realized, okay, well, yeah, I guess maybe I know enough to get a game job. So I went and got the uh, newspaper, the local newspaper on a Tuesday. And there happened to be one ad looking for a, a games developer. I think they might have said artist and programmer, artist or programmer, something like that. And that was the company CyberDream. So I went in and I interviewed there. And then two weeks later, started work. Just got super lucky to answer an ad at a time when it wasn't that common to have somebody who had some artistic skill and enough technical knowledge to put that to use in in the kind of primitive engines of that day. Well, I know your first um, game at Cyber Dreams was a game called Evolver, which um, yeah. didn't end up getting published in the end. I mean, what was kind of the story there? And was that a, you know, a valuable learning experience, you know, for your first game? Oh, huge. I mean, everything I did at Cyber Dreams in those early days was like a terrifying learning experience, because even though I had been making my own games for a long time, like, I didn't know how to do anything professionally. You know, um, I, the standards that the, the art director was trying to hold us to this guy Broomberry was a wonderful character, like totally like my 20 year older brother from Germany or something. <laughs> uh, this little Hispanic kid. Uh, but he really took me under his wing. Uh, but you know, he, he set a, a very high standard and it was, it was quite scary uh, for a kid like me that had been completely self-taught. So there was that aspect, but there was also the aspect that I had Giger was a hero of mine and and so to try to make my artwork look like theirs, yeah, it was terrifying. But you asked about Evolva, and I, or Evolver, that was my first game. And that was a really interesting experience because 
if I recall correctly, that was the only game that Cyber Dreams made or was working on at that time that wasn't licensing a famous artist style or famous author's style. Um, they were just kind of doing that as an original IP. And if I recall, I'm probably wrong about this because the company used contractors, but there was only one other person working on it, really. And that was um, Drew. Uh, I'm going to blank on his last name, but I believe his first name was Drew. And he didn't work at our office. So it was this really weird situation where here I am, my first game job. Um, I'm by far the most junior person at this company. And they put me to work on this game. It's like their first original IP. And there's nobody else in the office even working on it. I didn't even meet Drew until probably six months or so after I started. So what I was told was, well, we want you to do some backgrounds. We need environments for this thing. It's going to be a side-scrolling action game. And uh, that was quite unusual on a PC. That was the other thing. Like The primary target platform was going to be a PC and I don't know if you recall, but in those days in 1990, the PGA graphics cards were just super slow for, uh, well, just super slow in general, which is part of the reason why you had a lot of point and click adventure games instead, because they didn't have yep. to update the every pixel all the time, right? So the idea of doing a side-scrolling fast action game on the PC at that time was, oh, that was, that's pretty exciting, but also really scary. I'm like, how do I go about creating graphics for a situation like that? And so Why did it get cancelled yeah. in the end then, that, that, that project? What, what happened there? As I recall, the main thing was that Darkseed was kind of in trouble. There was a lot of back and forth with Giger to you know, get the graphics up to his standards, thankfully, because uh, we, we all wanted something that we would be proud of. And so, I, as I recall, it was sort of an all-hands-on-deck situation where it's like, well, this Evolver thing, the company is not really banking on it. Um, it's not making great progress anyway, as I recall. So why don't we just put Joby on uh, Darkseed. He loves Giger's artwork anyway. So, you know, it seems like a natural fit. So that's how I recall that happening. That must have been kind of amazing when you when you first even heard the concept of, of Darkseed and, uh, you know, you know, working with him on a, on, a, on a video game as well. And, you know, just the style of it. Did, did you really, really get excited working on that? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I was a little disappointed that we didn't get to finish Evolver. I, I was just starting to get the hang of how to do that. But yeah, that was definitely easily compensated for by the opportunity to work with Giger's graphics. His stuff was just so influential. I mean, certainly if I looked at my own sketchbook in the period just before I got that job, it's very Giger influenced. Um it's sort of like what I was trying to do in my own artwork at that time was like if you took Giger, gave him some acid and gave him like Dolly's palette. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it felt very natural to me. It was almost too natural in a way because I felt almost like I understood this is going to sound so arrogant. And it really is because I was oh so arrogant back then. As scared as I was of the rest of my team, I thought... Oh, I, I know Giger worked better than these guys. <laughs> How are they going to direct me on this stuff? You know, so the, the thing I was most scared of is how's he going to react? Um, because I think the press at the time had this notion that we were just scanning his artwork in and just using it directly, which was so far from the truth. Like there was no way to directly use his artwork for several reasons. So I knew that, yeah, at some point he's going to have to look at it and approve it and go like, where, what the hell is this stuff? 
Um, so yeah, it was is super exciting and terrifying all at once. But then you ask also about the the concept for the game, which I loved. It felt spot on for the platform at the time, and I, I loved the idea of telling a story that would use Giger's graphics for sort of half of the environments. And it was in real time as well, so it was a real time point and click. Yeah, event. you know, stuff like the phone would ring, and you'd have to actually go down there in time, and then the doorbell ringing. I, I really loved that idea of it. Yeah, and I love the, the the Lovecraftian aspect of it. That really resonated for me. I was watching a lot of films based on uh, or inspired by Lovecraft at the time, and um, I don't remember if uh, Hellraiser was out yet, but that. I do recall being already aware of that director's work and it's feeling like there was an opportunity to have some inspiration. It, it was a very eerie game. And I was wondering um, <laughs> what, what the process was like of, of first creating the art, but also digitization, because it was, it was a real mix of um, you know, digitization and uh, kind of hand-drawn stuff as well. Yeah, and that was a really interesting aspect because this we take for granted how easy it is to get images into a computer now. But back then, there was sort of the early days of flatbed scanners. And we had these, or we had one Epson flatbed scanner. And it could do decent resolution for the time, like maybe 100 or 150 pixels per inch or whatever. But the images were super grainy. So that alone meant we had to spend so much time reconditioning the artwork uh, to get it to look decent on a computer screen. So that's one reason why we couldn't use Giger's artwork that directly. But the other reason was, of course, we're working with the game design, and the game design has certain environments uh, that it needs in order to make the story make sense and for the interaction to make sense. And you couldn't just like look through Giger's artwork and go, oh, yeah, use that location. So a lot of what we did was we'd scan images of his into the computer, we'd clean it up for hour on hour to get the pieces to look more like the original at the resolution we needed. And then we would basically just use little bits and pieces, like tiny portions of the composition as little uh, cut and paste bits that we would then draw out shapes and fill that in with texture based on little bits and bobs that we would grab from his artwork. So for example... I might take like the top part of a skull after we'd processed it, processed it from the scanner and then stretch that out into a tree that's 10 times longer than that bit of the skull and just kind of use that to get some of that Giger lighting and shading and then hand paint over that in deluxe paint primarily uh, oh, nice. until it kind of looked like something that he painted, but in the composition that we needed for those environments. And uh, the... Was there any video capture like of VHS as well? Because, uh, you know, Mike Dawson, the main character in it, um, yeah, the kind of way that he walked, but also they had a, you know, kind of a f- photography uh, look on him as well that, that it had been kind of captured for uh, when they're actually implanting the seed into his brain. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so, yeah, that was uh, all digitized from video of him walking around. I think a lot of that, was actually done on a pedestal and it was captured a frame at a time instead of video. But I think most of the animation of Mike Dawson himself was captured before I joined that project. So I can't say for sure if they 
literally grabbed video and then digitized that and then cleaned up the frames or, or had him actually do one pose at a time and then sequence those frames together. So I can't speak to that part that much, but I can tell you like the int- the part of the intro sequence where you see him up close and then these Giger-esque hands come around the sides of his face and then rip a hole in his forehead yeah. and the alien seed is injected. That I hand animated in deluxe anime in a super arduous process too, because you might recall the game runs at 640 by 350, but there was no animation tool at the time that let you animate directly at that resolution. So I had to animate it in little pieces and then send those pieces to the programmers with coordinates about where those pieces should uh, be displayed within the 640 by 350 window. Did Giga have any kind of feedback on the artwork itself? Because, I mean, I did read that apparently he wasn't keen on the uh, the VGA's 320 by 200 resolution, and that required the right. game to be kind of bumped up a bit higher, and obviously then he sacrificed the colour palette as well. I mean, how did his feedback kind of affect the, the style of and the look of the game? Yeah, that was the main thing that I recall. And it's just that up to a certain point, it had been 320 by 200 so that we could use the full palette available at the time, uh, you know, full 256 colors. But he wasn't happy with the level of detail uh, and the palette, I believe. And so I think that's part of when the move was made to go at, to the 640 by 350. And one aspect of that was not only translating things into a higher resolution, which meant just redoing a lot of stuff from scratch, but also at that resolution, you only got 16 colors at a time. So for mm. each screen full of information, we had to very carefully select the right 16 colors uh, for that, which also created a massive problem for the real world locations. Because in that game, there's sort of the world of light and the world of dark. And in the world of light, it's supposed to be full of color. But at that resolution with only 16 colors, it was really hard to get anything that looked smooth and, and colorful. In a way, yeah, having only 16 colors was kind of a benefit for the dark world that's supposed to look very much like Giger stuff. But yeah, so the world, the light world, very difficult. Luckily, I didn't personally have to do too much on the light world. I think the uh, the more senior people there like Broombear and Paul saw that I was a big fan of Giger. So they mostly kept me on the Giger-esque stuff. Mm. Was it tough to kind of, you know, fit all the artwork on, on a disc as well as like music and stuff that really added to that atmosphere? Um, it really scared me that game. <laughs> it's one of the scariest games <laughs> yeah. I played as a kid and all the different like, you know, incidental music coming up and all of that just works so well together. Yeah. Props to the music team. Um, I'm going to blank on their names. I did. I do remember meeting the composer at a GDC like 10 years later. Uh, it was, it was fun to kind of catch up, but yeah, they did a, a great job. Um, and you were speaking about, was it difficult to fit everything? It was super difficult. Uh, as I recall, we ended up having to take up, it was one of the early games that required multiple discs. I think it was five, uh, three and a quarter inch discs that it required. And even then we had to go through a lot of hoops to compress the graphics enough. And in those days too, we were also our own testers. <laughs> So we would often run into issues with things not sitting and that would create bugs and we have to go redo stuff and then do our own Q&A basically. And that was quite a pain in the neck because you'd have to duplicate the whole set of five discs and you'd have to 
wrangle with the DOS memory manager stuff to install the thing. And then you're sitting there play testing it for hours and hours. No matter how good the game turns out in the end, when you're doing that, you're just tearing your hair out because, you know, you just spent countless days uh, crunching to make the game. And now you're having to look at your own graphics over and over and over again. It's that part is not a fun process at all. Well, after that, I mean, you worked on um, Cyber Race for, for DOS, and that was a really interesting yeah. title. I mean, what did you, you do on that game, and what was it like kind of moving into those games? It was kind of a hybrid, wasn't it, of 3D graphics and 2D as well? Yeah, uh, that was a really interesting in totally different set of ways, one of which was that, uh, unlike with Giger, who I, you know, I heard him on the phone a few times, but I was way too junior to talk with him, and I certainly didn't get to go on the trip to Europe to meet him in person. But uh, with Cyber Race, yeah, it was based on the uh, artwork of Sid Mead, who was another one of my artistic heroes. And he visited the office a few times, um, and I got to get some great visual tips directly from him. Uh, my job was primarily art, once again. Um, basically, what happened was Cyber Dreams, the, the studio, had licensed his name. Part of the deal was he was supposed to send us sketches, or at least from his studio, and these sketches would be extremely loose. If you're familiar with Sid Mead's work, you know that it's like this beautiful full color stuff that looks like Blade Runner or all this futuristic automotive and cities of the future, amazing stuff like that. But the materials he would send us was just very loose pen line work. And I think a lot of the times it was actually from his protégés. He had a team of artists working under him that he would guide and, and then they would just kind of fax us this black and white line art. And so a lot of my uh, job was just to take that stuff and turn it into full color graphics that looked like Sid Mead had created it. So that was extra nerve wracking because going from uh, Giger-esque stuff, and I thought we had done a pretty good job with Giger's stuff on Darkseed, but transitioning to Sid's much more geometric style and full color and kind of uh, voxel landscapes really and, uh, you know, that, that that kind of 3D environment as well. It, it must have been quite a yeah. uh, a tough switch. Very difficult. And and the voxel thing, too, is really interesting and difficult uh, because it was sort of like working in two different worlds at once in a, in a very different way than with, with Darkseed, though, because, you, like you said, part of it, it's 2D, like the cutscenes, but then the game itself was supposed to be in this 3D um, and using a voxel tech. But during my time there, we barely had that running. And it was, I don't know if you know, but uh, Nova Logic was the first game company to ship a kind of voxel world. But theirs was way more advanced than what we had, at least at my time at, at Cyber Dreams. So trying to provide any artwork for the much more primitive version of the voxel rendering that we had at Cyber Dreams. Yeah, I mean, you know, I could barely scratch the surface on that by the time that uh, my friend and I left that company. Well, it would be interesting to kind of go into Nova Logic then. So, I mean, obviously that was your, your next step after Cyber Dreams. So what prompted that move and how did your role evolve when you got to Nova Logic? Yeah, the, the main thing was just that my friend Paul and I, who had been working together at Cyber Dreams, had seen this Comanche Maximum Overkill game that they were advertising. I don't think it had launched yet when we left cyber dreams to go to nova logic but we saw those ads at least and we were both like 
this can't be real. That looks way too good. It was just, it was like so far ahead of any kind of 3D landscapes that we were seeing in any other game, any kind of real time things. So we're like, we got to understand what kind of magic these guys have going for them. Uh, so that was the main thing. Um, you know, I, I was really proud of the creative aspect of what we were doing at Cyber Dreams, but technology wise, and no disrespect to their programmers, they were brilliant. But uh, in terms of graphics rendering, Nova Logic definitely had some kind of magic that I just had to get my hands on. So that that was really the impetus that, that took Paul and I both there. And the biggest change other than that immediately was that although I had been doing a bunch of 3D for years, even before Cyber Dreams, and I got to use some 3D rendering to do some of the the, the graphics, the cutscenes that went into Darkseed, it wasn't our main thing at Cyber Dreams. Uh, and I saw that with Nova Logic, with that real-time voxel space engine, there was an opportunity to get much more into 3D, which probably sounds like no big deal now, but this would have been 92. And there was very little real uh, 3D, especially real-time 3D development going on back then in, in games. So, you know, that was super inspiring to uh, have the potential to do that. Not only 3D graphics for real-time, but also to use some of the new processors that were coming out because I wanted to really push the limits of what you could do with pre-rendered or cutscenes as well. So that that was how that was a big aspect to how my role changed was I went from maybe getting to do 3D like one day a month to having like a week out of a month be 3D to within I don't know by the end of my first year at Nova Logic probably more than half of my job was spent doing 3D stuff. Well, I mean that was definitely the way the industry, you know, all completely headed in that era um, by the mid nineties. Yeah. And speaking of uh, being at the cutting edge of technology as well, um, right. I know you worked on virtual reality as well, including uh, some titles for Sega's unreleased VR goggles. So, yeah. um, can you tell us a bit more about that? Then, what, what were you working on? And can you tell us a bit about the the system itself? What are your memories of it? Yeah, so that there was a game called, if I recall correctly, Iron Hammer, another unreleased game. Um, which, as I recall, we got it like, I want to say at least 90% done, but then Sega uh, canceled their, I think they called it Sega VR. It was basically a set of goggles that were a big, heavy wire attached to a desk unit. And yeah, I think they just realized that it wasn't really ready for the mass market. So they canceled the hardware and therefore we didn't launch the game. Um, and what I remember about the game was... It was a quasi 3D action shooter. So you can imagine your, the context of the game is like you're in this sort of hovercraft and I would create these cutscenes where your little hovercraft gets launched from this mothership and drops down onto this alien landscape. And then through the goggles, uh, as you turn your head left and right, you're just turning your hovercraft left and right. And the environment was very basic. It was really 2D, but then you kind of pan left and right with your, your head angle. And so the other folks on the team would create these sprites that represent the different alien craft that are kind of approaching you. So it's a little like battle zone, like a fast paced battle zone. If you remember that game. Do, do you think it would have um, done, done well if it came out? I think the game design was fine. Um, I think it was a, a decent game for the time, but the hardware 
I, I don't imagine most people would have wanted to wear it for more than 15 minutes. It was very, very heavy. It was uh, very um, hot <laughs> compared to today's little LED screens that they have and, you know, the VR hardware. I mean, these were little CRT screens in front of each eye, as I recall. There might have been one big CRT screen. Um, so you can imagine that was very hot. It was very low resolution and very, and, uh, yeah, heavy and hot. And it could really only track you on one axis is just basically the turning. As far as I remember, certainly that's all we could use in our game. So yeah, I think while the game itself was fine, I think the overall experience with the hardware would have not been very satisfying to most people. Well, during this time, it was a, a very interesting time where people were transitioning from 2D to 3D. And uh, a lot of really famous games companies actually tripped up with this and uh, didn't do so well. What, what do you think was really important about that transition? And, uh, and and why do you think so many people failed on it? Well, it was really difficult. The, the teams that I recall doing really well at the time, they started getting the hang of creating really beautiful 2D which is a whole challenge in its own. Um, as you know, like there's people these days that do pixel art because it's, it's its own art form, right? And so you can imagine a lot of these teams that got really good at doing that. Some of them weren't that interested in doing the 3D. And that, I think, kind of bred a, a sort of series of half-assed attempts at it. You know, people, you have to approach it wholeheartedly or don't do it at all because it was very difficult. So that's just the artistic side. And then the technology, that took a while to develop as well. Another big part of it related to that is this, you have to remember these, this is way before the days of 3D accelerators, right? So um, those, the computers, the, the, the game hardware back then didn't have dedicated chips specifically for 3D. So, you know, you had to have brilliant engineers that were really interested in that side of things and artists that were interested in bridging that gap and yeah it was just a rare thing back then uh so yeah and also the designs uh i think most folks probably recall mario 64 as a watershed moment because of the fact that it kind of got a lot of things right that other teams had been trying to do for a while Mm. but yeah it took a while for people to really get a handle for how interactions certain kinds of interactions should work in 3d a long time with uh, really bad camera angles was <laughs> one yeah. huge thing. Yeah, you know, but you know there were definitely standouts like uh, you know, Comanche Maximum Overkill from from Nova Logic was a good example of something where uh, Kyle Freeman, another longtime friend of mine, you know, he, he picked just the right elements to focus on of what the game should be that were just right for what the hardware could do at the time. Well, how did you get involved with NeverSoft? Yeah, so what happened there was I think. Uh, so the three founders who I still know to this day, so uh, Joel Jewett and Chris Ward and Nick West, they had founded the company about six months before thinking that they were going to still do 2D games. And what were they working on at the time? It was a game called Skeleton Warriors that they had just landed the deal for. I think they were starting to get hints that the publisher wasn't too keen on just 2D that they, they wanted to start seeing, if not a 3D game, at least a game that would contain elements that looked more three-dimensional. So, you know, 3D rendered to sprites kind of thing. And so, yeah, they, they wanted an artist who, you know, was experienced and 
was excited about 3D and had a lot of experience doing that. And I think I was one of the few at the time, or at least in the area <laughs> in Los Angeles. Uh, so that that was the main thing. Um, so yeah, I went in there to try to bring some 3D chops to the studio. And what ended up happening is that, yeah, sure enough, um, I think that game was about to be canceled if we didn't show how we could bring some 3D to it. Uh, and yeah, I was able to bring some of that in and we, we saved that game and got our first game published uh, with some, some pretty cool renderings, I think. And well, Skeleton was, Warriors. Uh, yeah, the Skeleton Warriors. Yeah. Well, I was going to say that was based on a TV series as well, wasn't it? So, I mean, how did you make sure that game was true to the show and was actually making a, you know, a game of a TV series? Was that, that quite a unique experience doing that? Yeah, that was, you know, I had some experience with licenses. That's what they call it in the business, right? Uh, mm. But it was an interesting kind of license because it wasn't a super well-known artist or anything. Like you said, though, it was a Saturday morning cartoon show. And I thought it had kind of a cool style. What I really liked, though, was the toys. Um, that was a, a big selling point for me because if you've ever seen those Skeleton Warriors toys, they were quite detailed. That was a, really unusual for the time. You know, they had some real grit and grime to them. It kind of looked like real dull. So the other thing that was interesting about it is it was a, published by a company called Landmark Entertainment. They were here in L.A., so we got to go visit with them a number of times. So to your question about, like, how do we make sure that the game felt true to the cartoon series? It was by visiting them. And that was my first real experience going beyond just trying to understand what does the artwork look like and how to translate that. But as, as one of the key people at the studio, I had to understand, like, what really is the heart of this show? What makes it tick? Who are these characters? Why are they the way they are the way it is? And translate all of that into the game as well. That was uh, quite an experience to be able to broaden my chops. You know, again, I had made games on my own for years before getting in professionally. But once I got into the industry proper, you know, you kind of get siloed. Um, at first, I mm. had to like just prove my chops on the artwork. Skeleton Warriors was uh, kind of big broadening for me in that respect. Not that I had that much to say on the design, but the world more so. Yeah. I've just looked at some of those Skeleton Warriors toys on eBay as well. They're a bit out of my price range these days. So, Oh, really? <laughs> Are they cool doing idea. pretty well on a resale? Yes. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so I still I looked, got a little collection behind me over there with my Skylanders. An investment. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's talk about um, MDK as well. I mean, that was a groundbreaking game technically and stylistically as well. So, I mean, what are your memories of working on that title? And did you enjoy working with uh, Nick Bruti on that game? Oh, yeah, so much. So, in fact, jumping ahead just a little bit, I was so disappointed when later on I went to Shiny and those guys were just on their way out the door. And I was like, "What? where are you guys going? Like, I came to the studio partly to work with you guys. Anyway, yeah, yeah. Back at uh, Neversoft, what happened, how I got connected with MDK and, and Nick was that, uh, yeah, we had only recently finally gotten Skeleton Warriors out the door. We were working on a Ghost Rider game with Marvel and Shiny. Uh, entertainment, which was founded by Dave Perry, who I later worked with, and and they had done Earthworm Jim and Nick Brody and Dave were all that, uh, and so I I really admired what they were doing. The fact that they were doing the original IP it was very artistic, super creative, and it had a lot of humor. So I had my eye on them, and they had their eye on us. They had uh, we had gotten a few really good mentions for Skeleton Wars in some of the early game magazines, and I guess that caught their attention. 
And they had been making MDK for a PC. And the PlayStation 1 was starting to get pretty big, as I recall. And they realized, okay, yeah, we should definitely translate this to the PlayStation if we can. Who are some hot PlayStation developers? Oh, these Neversoft guys. Let's go talk to them. So they visited our offices a few times. And we got along great right away. Uh, you know, they could see that we were starting to really push the 3D stuff and had been pretty good at bringing that to the Sega Saturn even, which was really not that much of a 3D uh, console. Um, and certainly we're doing a lot more with it on PlayStation. So yeah, we struck a deal to uh, port MDK from the PC to the PlayStation 1. That's how that got started. Well, you mentioned uh, Shiny Entertainment as well, and they were absolutely huge company. And uh, w- what was it kind of like getting involved with them? And, uh, you know, what was the company's vision like at the time? So it was really interesting because that was my first experience working with what at the time we called a boutique studio. There were maybe 40, 50 people when I joined. It was just so fancy. <laughs> they probably hate me saying it that way, but compared to. <laughs> The dig that we had at Neversoft, which I was super proud of what we had going at Neversoft, but we were we were not a well-funded studio, let's say, Um, which is part of the reason that you know as much as I enjoyed taking on porting MDK from PC uh, to PlayStation, you know, there's definitely an extra aura when you get to work on your own original IP. So the fact that Shiny was doing that, it really speaks to the fact that. They were a well-respected developer already. Like what they, what Dave Perry had done with games like Cool Spot and Aladdin, it it really cut him a lot of sway in the industry. So uh, his publisher, that was Interplay, and and Playmates Interactive, yeah, it, they were well-funded, and, and it showed in their studio. So their studio, I don't know if you're how familiar you are with the LA area, but there's a famous coastal highway called PCH. Very expensive real estate on PCH, and Chinese design studio was in Laguna Beach, very pricey area, right on PCH. And very unusual for uh, the game industry. You can actually open the windows. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> you know, you, you get so used to working in these like office parks where you don't open the windows, the, the climate's set. So, we're, yeah, working in this beautiful little studio right on PCH, the ocean breeze. And working on our own original IP in a well-funded studio, we were, it was sort of no holds barred. It felt like, you know, the only time you're going to get in trouble is if you're not going too far. Mm. That was really unusual. You did some incredible titles there as well. I mean, Sacrifice would be one of the standouts from uh, that era at Shiny. What was the backstory with that game then and the, the development? Yeah, so what happened with that was it was really instigated to my mind, by uh, the lead programmer, Martin Brownlow. Brilliant, brilliant programmer. And I think about maybe two, somewhere between one to three months before I started working on the project, he had started developing a pitch and there was a producer on it at the time. uh, I think they were roommates, uh, Tommy Francois, but I didn't work with him that much initially. It was just that Martin had this idea and Dave Perry saw that I had the capacity not only to work on the this helicopter game, which later on became RC Stunt Copter, uh, but that I he thought that I had the bandwidth to not only keep doing the artwork for that, but to work with Martin to flesh out this sacrifice game. Because initially, I think that the thought was, okay, this is a cool idea 
a seed idea for a strategy game, but it's not fully formed yet. And there was Martin, you know, being a, a programmer, it didn't have any kind of aesthetic for it defined yet. And Dave, part of the reason he wanted me to join Shiny in the first place was because you could see the art direction that I was providing at Neversoft. But at the same time, I had these technical chops that were still a, a bit unusual at that time. So he thought, okay, we'll pair him with Martin. He's this brilliant uh, 3D engineer. Uh, and Joby can figure out what's the aesthetic of this thing and how does that translate to the technology. But he's, I also had some design chops so I could work with Martin on figuring out, you know, what, what should this game actually be in more detail? Uh, you know, Martin had a, a pretty good idea of what he wanted the game to be, but it did evolve quite a bit over time, um, especially once we brought this uh, lead designer named Eric Flanham over. Uh, Eric was already a big deal from working at Blizzard on, I, I believe he had been on Warcraft as, and definitely Starcraft. So that was a really interesting development. Honestly, Sacrifice is still the favorite game I've ever made in my whole career. Um, and partly because getting to work with folks like that, but also because we were just given free reign. It's just the kind of thing that almost never happens anymore if you're a funded studio. To give you one example, when we got the game far enough along to where we could start testing it. We could like throw, you know, every week another 10 um, user testers come in and giving us feedback on the game. After the very first playtest session, somebody, I'm going to blank on her name, but she was an executive vice president at the publisher at Interplay. And she came to our studio just to kind of get to know us a little bit better because she could see this was going to be a, a really good game. And she wanted to make sure that we were getting the support we needed. And she pulled me aside towards the end of her visit and she's like, you know, now that you guys are uh, going to start testing this a lot, you're going to get a lot of feedback from us. And she said, but don't listen to any of that feedback because you clearly know what you're doing. Like nobody ever says anything like that to, to developers anymore. Like that is such a rare thing. And so much of that, I got to give credit to Dave Perry though, because he had just created such an aura of confidence and quality around that studio uh, I, mm. you know, I don't think I would have gotten that kind of feedback from our publisher if it weren't for that. But it's also uh, Brian Fargo, who is the president and the, the the CEO of Interplay. Like he's he was a real gamer. Like he really put in the time to get to know every one of those games. He would call me in the middle of the night to do multiplayer sessions and kick the ass of some of the newbies during our closed beta sessions. It, it was a unique experience. Well, uh, jumping ahead a little bit as well. Um, uh- I absolutely loved the true crime series and um, amazingly like the maps were absolutely huge on there. Uh, I think uh, actually bigger than San Andreas. Um, you guys were using like satellite imagery and, and GPS. What was it like to kind of yeah, create such a huge giant sprawling map? Oh my God. What a monumental task that was. I mean, it's probably really hard for gamers these days to look at that and realize like what an enormous challenge that was because there's so many tools at our disposal now with things like Google Earth and all of those data sets and the AI. But boy, props to Adrian Stevens, who is the CTO on that. He was the main programmer and Peter Morowick, who was the co-founder with Adrian and the, the ambition that they set out. But just crazy too, just completely crazy because there were just no, absolutely no tools uh, to build anything like that. So they had to build all of that from scratch. 
And um, yeah, it was a, it was a nightmare on a lot of levels, but we all thought it was super exciting because nobody had done anything like that. I mean, you alluded to it. It was a 20 mile by 20 mile area of Los Angeles, GPS accurate streets. And they literally did download every bit of satellite data they could find at the time, which was not easy to come by. You know, it was literally going directly to the USGS survey data, I guess. But, you know, there weren't a lot of, if any, other game teams trying to access that stuff. So it wasn't really formatted for that kind of use at all. And yeah, Adrian and his team, folks like Adam Morwick, who is Peter's brother, would have to build out these editor tools that could absorb that data and turn it into very efficient abstracted data that could be rendered in real time. And one of the other big things was, you know, okay, even if you have the streets of 20 mile by 20 mile area, okay, well, where do you get the buildings? So yeah. the team had to go out and take thousands and thousands of photos and then taking painstakingly decide, okay, well, we can't build every building in Los Angeles, obviously. So what are the archetypal types of buildings and how do we build those? And how do we then populate the city based on rules that will take all the street layouts and then kind of auto propagate those buildings in the right way based on the neighborhoods and height data of the streets. So that was super interesting. Another way that that was personally very fun for me was not only getting to help on the art direction of such a monstrously ambitious thing, but it uh, was also a fun programming challenge because one of the things I got to do was to build some tools in 3D Studio that would help the artists so that they didn't have to hand texture everything. They did a lot of stuff uh, manually, but uh, if they had to do the entire process from beginning to end manually, I don't think we could have possibly gotten it done. So I wrote some tools that just automated some of that. And that's uh, kind of taken me where I am today, where now I'm even much more so like half art and design and company strategy. And I spent a lot of my time coding now, actually. It's it's amazing to hear that because, you know, uh, in the kind of battle of GTA clones, I remember there was a, a lot of people trying to do that kind of mapping. The getaway was one um, that I remember right. where they tried to do London and we'd always drive around it and be like, well, that area seems a bit small. <laughs> that one seems a bit, a, bit, a bit little compared to actually how it was. Um, but, you know, doing that back then with GPS and that early technology, uh, creating it, it's just a monumental achievement. And also then having alternative endings in multiple directions that the game can take. God, as well. Yeah. Yeah. Peter and the design team did such a great job with that stuff. And it, it was really a team effort too, because there was people from Activision that were helping out with it, but it was super scary. I had to say, like we were really proud and we knew it was going to come together but when you work on a game like that, where the tools are make or break, um, you know, it took us like three years to get that done, partly because the first couple of years were just developing the technology. So you're kind of flying blind. It's a bit like developing for a game console that hasn't come out yet, right? Like you, you, you think you know what the game should be, but you don't really get to play it proper until very late in development. So it's really scary. And did you get to meet any of the voice actors? I know that Christopher Walken was one of the, uh, the voiceover artists on that. Yeah, I didn't personally, unfortunately. I don't have any fun stories to share with, about that uh, directly other than, you know, we, we had this idea kind of late breaking that, well, there's something that was a recurring theme in Lux of Flux games was that at the start of each game, 
you'd see the logo and there'd be a little phrase. There was a random set of phrases that would come up underneath the logo. And I think Peter, one of the, either Peter or one of his designers had the idea that it'd be fun to have Christopher Walken say those phrases. And so we put that in. So every time he'd start up the game, you know, you hear Christopher Walken's voice uh, <laughs> sing our studio. Very cool. Well, uh, Joby, it's been incredible hearing some of your memories about these amazing, really innovative titles that you've worked on throughout your career. I mean, you kind of touched on what you're doing nowadays. I mean, is there anything we should uh, look out for coming up from you over the next few months? Yeah. So my uh, super exciting new project is uh, taking, you can download our app on your mobile phone and as simple as taking a selfie, we instantly turn you into a game avatar. Um, and I'm super excited about that. We have already an iOS app you can download. It's, the company's called Action Face. Um, and in a few weeks, we'll be launching a 2D to 3D uh, piece of technology so that anybody on any phone or a webcam-enabled device can do this. And so we're building this technology to facilitate game teams who want to let players be part of the game, but also you can uh, just ter- turn your avatar into a 3D print. So, you know, you order a 3D print and you get basically a, a statue of your avatar to commemorate the moment. And so we're selling these at NBA events and all kinds of different ways. So I'm super excited about that. It's always been a, a dream of mine to, you know, with Skylanders, I got to make toys and video games mm. combined. Um, but to let people become their own toys is to me even more exciting and easily the most challenging thing I've ever done. Yeah, it's a childhood dream come true, isn't it? Having a, a toy yeah. of yourself. Yeah, yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Well, Joby, it's been amazing to talk to you. Um, keep up the good work and thank you so much for taking the time to do some reminiscing with us. It's been incredible to have you on. Thank you so much. It's an honor.